Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. So it's been six months, and this is the last episode of the first season of Climavores. And I've learned a lot. I've learned about food. I've learned about climate. Mike, I've learned about you. I've learned that uh, that your dog is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I've learned that you have a wonderful family. I've learned that you can't cook, and I've learned I've learned a lot about audio, including the fact that I have this buzzing. Which, if, if you hear, there's construction in my building. But what are you going to do? Well, I've learned that lentils don't suck. I definitely owe that to you. I guess I, I learned that you really can cook. Um, yet another thing that you can do and I can't, I mean, I've learned that I, I can't stand the sound of my own voice when I I hear it on playback. I've learned, of course, that food is all trade-offs all the time. Uh, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm listening to you tomorrow. Um, I've learned, I've learned that this is super fun, that, uh, that I, I love talking to you off air and on air. It's been, it's been a great addition to to my life. And and to mine. It's been fun doing audio in general. It's been fun working with the people at Postscript. I've learned a lot about this. I've gotten used to a new medium. I've got gotten used to not flying solo. And uh and I've learned a, a lot from you. And it's just it's been a great six months. But we've probably even learned a few things about food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Well look, we we've got the show it's about this really, really big problem, right? I mean, it's sort of how are we going to feed, you know, nine billion people that are coming? You know, we already got eight. How are we going to have food for all of them without making such a big mess? You know, how are we going to feed the world without frying the world, without, without you know, creating another mass extinction? And, you know, the food system is a third of our emissions. It's just a really big problem. And honestly, I'd say the biggest thing I've learned doing this show, it's, it's made me a lot more optimistic that it's a solvable problem and a lot less optimistic that we're actually going to solve it, <laughs> right? I can, I can see the path to the promised land, and, uh, and I'm not sure we're going to get there. And, you know, I, I'm kind of with you on this because we have talked about so many things that that seem like they can be part of the solution. And of course, it's it's been frustrating as we've become optimistic about these things to see that other people aren't as optimistic. And there's so much doom. There's so much gloom. There's so much naysaying. There's so much, but what about-ism? And, and it's it's sort of hard to maintain your optimism when you read all the time that you know fake meat has failed that you know uh, cultivated meat is never going to be a reality which okay I kind of said that myself and <laughs> you know and t- to be fair we've also done our part on the doom and gloom and I think one of the episodes where we got the most pushback was when we talked about how local is not going to be a big part of the solution if a part of the solution at all. Right. That was our second episode. And then our second to last was about Kernza and regenerative, where we kind of suggested that wasn't going to, you know, be the magic bullet either. So we're optimistic, but we're not optimistic about some of the things that other people are optimistic about. And they're not necessarily optimistic about the things that we're optimistic about. And that is actually something that we really want to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we're, and, you know, not to give everything away, but I think we're, you know, we're techno-optimists, among other things. And that, uh, and we've been really sort of inspired by, by talking to people who are in this world doing food tech, doing ag tech. And it does feel kind of crazy in, in 2023 not to be excited about the possibilities, at least, of technology. When I think I said in a recent show, right, we're sitting here with devices in our pockets that have, like, every fact known to mankind, and you can video chat with somebody on the other side of the world and it beeps when you lose it. I mean, like, how can you say, like, we are screwed? I mean, Pete, we're, as a species, we're capable of coming up with some cool stuff. And technology has improved almost every aspect of our life. And that doesn't mean that technology is always good. We did a whole show about vertical farms and how they're not going to solve the problem. They're like the the Edsel of ag tech. And, and, so it's like we we try to look at each one on its merits. You know, we're we're optimists about possibilities and I hope this show has been, you know, trying to lay out some of these incredible possibilities that are lying ahead of us in the next couple decades. But of course, as, you know, while we talk about, you know, the amazing human capacity to come up with this cool stuff, it's also up to humans to make it work. And that's where, you know, that's where sometimes we, uh, you know, this show is always also about pointing out our foibles. And uh, I certainly have a lot of them. I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores, a show about hope and optimism and eating on a changing planet. So Tamar, the big story in our world this week was Bloomberg Business Week did a huge cover story. The uh, cover line was Beyond Impossible. And it was about how plant-based meat, which was so hyped a few years ago when Beyond Meat was skyrocketing up to $235 a share, has turned out to be just a fad. It's fizzled. Uh, Beyond is now at $13 a share. Um, it was just a very gloomy story about the the death and of a overhyped fad. Um, but I, I, I noticed that there was, I guess it was a sidebar. It's hard to know when everything's online. But in the same package, uh, Bloomberg had another piece that said, there's never been, this was the headline, there's never been a better time to try plant-based eggs, uh, which, was, which was really interesting, um, you know, because I'm partly, I, I, you know, read through the story and I was like, wow, that's cool. It's, uh, you know, plant-based eggs because of the avian flu and just problems in the egg supply chain and inflation in general. Animal eggs have gotten more expensive while uh, plant-based eggs are doing quite well. And in fact, if you read, I guess, to like the 12th paragraph of the story, you you learn that 99% of the plant-based egg market is controlled by just 
But what made me laugh about that is that six years ago, back when Just was called Hampton Creek, this very same publication, <laughs> Bloomberg Businessweek, had done a huge story that showed that it was it was about how basically Hampton Creek was a big scam. And they had a, a picture of the CEO, Josh Tetrick, with mayonnaise smeared all over his face. And it was and there was plenty of good reporting in the story about how he had done this kind of sketch. Sketchy, sketchy little scam to have his own employees go to stores and buy his mayonnaise. I remember that. I was there. And there was stuff about its kind of inflated sales projections. And there he was, you know, I think he was hooking up with one of his employees. And there were some allegations that basically th- there was this little startup that had raised a ton of money, but they were in a San Francisco garage. And uh, and and it looked ridiculous. And it was all about how, like, how he had come all these investors into basically funding edible vaporware. But now six months, six years later, they're killing it. Um, you know, they've, uh, they're selling eggs all over the world. They've, uh, they've probably displaced, I think it's now up to like 400 million eggs. Um, they're, they've built a nice business and now it's plant-based meat that's on the hot seat, right? It's their turn in the barrel, and they're doomed, and they're screwed. So it's just, I find it kind of depressing that, uh, that we just write these things off when it looks like there's a little bit of turbulence in the sky. So the eggs, I think, are a very useful object lesson here. What was that cycle of optimism the Gardner you were talking hype about cycle. last time? Thank you. Right. What, what is it? The Gardner hype cycle, right? We were in the the the, the hype over over expectations or inflated expectations, and now we're in the trough of disillusionment. Right. And, you know, the 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 reporter on the Bloomberg story, Dina Shanker, who is a Twitter friend of mine, was totally right that it was overhyped. And so it I understand why people are responding in this way. But the egg lesson is really instructive because it tells us a couple of things. It tells us, number one, that these replacements can succeed, at least on some scale. Um, And number two, it tells us that it's really hard to predict which ones are going to take off and which ones are not going to take off. And, you know, everybody's trashing plant-based meat, but plant-based milk is now like, what, 15% of the market? And, you know, I'm one of the people who has replaced some of my milk with oat milk. I still need cream in my coffee. I'm sorry. But my smoothies are now made either with oat milk or sometimes with coconut water because I'm trying to wean myself off dairy and, and have less of it. And so sometimes these products, they're just going to, they're going to surprise you because they're going to capture a share of the market. I mean, has anything derailed a giant slice of animal ag yet? No, nothing has. Because while we've been drinking less milk, we've been eating more cheese and yogurt to make up for it. So, so it's not like we've seen monumental shifts, but we have seen glimmers of success that we hope can replicate. That's right. And I think I think some of this is about, right, like, are you seeing the glass half empty or half spill, right? Do, you know, do is past performance always indicative of future results? I and mean, this feels a lot like writing about the solar industry in, like, the mid-1960s and saying, like, it's too expensive, nobody likes it, it's not going anywhere, it's like, you know, this is, what a bust, what a fad. Um, and it's... Uh, 
it, it seems kind of silly, right? I mean, it was this is an incredibly young industry. Um, you know, the first Beyond Meat was founded in 2009, Impossible in 2011. The first Impossible Burger wasn't until 2016, um, and so we are so early in this cycle. And I think even uh, you, we look, we did a, back in July when this show just started, we did an episode on the, the rise and fall of plant-based meat. So it's not like we're in denial about it. <laughs> like this is a, it's a, it's a real thing. It's having real problems. Um, but, uh, but there are a lot of really good scientists working on it. And I think the fact that as we would admit, this stuff is not yet good enough and not yet cheap enough is not a reason to say that it's, you know, this industry is screwed. It's a reason for hope. It's like doing pretty well, even though it's still not good enough. We've seen progress. It's better than it was. It's cheaper than it was. And we have every reason to suspect that it is going to continue to get better and cheaper. Yeah, I was I was just out in San Francisco and I saw some products for the first time that it felt like okay, this is now good enough to replace its analog, right? And sometimes not often not cheap enough. Uh, but, you know, the the impossible sausage in Starbucks to me is like that's a great breakfast sausage. I had turkey slices at Better Meat at the Better Meat company that were made in a fermentation tank that tasted exactly like turkey slices. Um, I had the new Just Egg scramble, and you know it doesn't taste like much because eggs don't really, but you know it's scrambled exactly like an egg. Um, I had Perfect Days cream cheese that was they it's with actual dairy proteins expressed out of you know that was basically produced in a factory that's called yeast <laughs> genetically modified yeast and it's incredibly cool stuff and this company has raised 800 million dollars and are they still tiny in terms of the global d- dairy market oh my god yeah they're just like they're they're not even a rounding error, but it's impossible not to be excited you know when you try it and you're like okay that's cream cheese it's impossible not to get excited about this stuff. And you've tried a lot more of these than I have because you've been working on a book about this and you've been traveling and you've been talking to all of these people. And some of my enthusiasm comes vicariously (laughs) through you and your travel stories. And, you know, I'm not optimistic about all of these things. I have some real skepticism about cultivated meat or cell-based meat or whatever you want to call it because I think scaling is going to be a problem. And I don't know that it's ever going to get to the point, ever meaning, you know, in the foreseeable future, in our lifetimes, although I don't have all that much left, um, that it's going to be at the price point that it needs to be to compete with meat meat. But I think, you know, in a hundred years or 200 years, there, there are going to be unimaginable changes because 200 years ago, there were unimaginable changes. And writing off any of these seems, and you know, I say this all the time, it always reminds me of the guy who wanted to close the patent office in like 1922 or whatever it was, because everything had been invented. And I think there really are going to be things that just are not part of our ken. I mean, we marvel at Kevin, my husband was showed me a story about somebody who was predicting the advent of cell phones back in the 50s, and, and she was holding something that looked just like the Motorola 
roll a star tack. <laughs> and, and it seemed so outlandish that she was predicting that we would have these in our pockets and it would, you know, replace all these, all these devices. And of course, here we are. Right. Radical change always seems unfathomable until it happens, right? That's what makes it radical, right? And I mean, who would have thought that we'd have, we'd be killing 70 billion animals a year, right? That seems, you know, and you, and the, the stuff that goes on in some of these factory farms was unfathomable 20 years ago too. Um, I think, look, we, we disagree a little bit about cultivated meat, but I think the skepticism is warranted. And in fact, it's funny, even in the industry, there are people who are skeptical. And I think that's been some of the things that's driving innovation. I talked to that guy at Sci-Fi Foods a couple weeks ago, and he says he doesn't think cultivated meat can make it on the current path that companies like Just and Upside are pursuing. So they're using CRISPR, and they've figured out a way to... Uh, some of the problems that you pointed out on our episode with Hank Green about getting the cells to really replicate in, uh, you know, in that broth, um, they figured out through CRISPR to basically try to train cells to do it in suspension, which he thinks is going to work better. And he thinks he's going to get a, in a few years, he's going to have a dollar burger. And if he does, I think that'll, that'll change things. Um, again, it's like, we don't know what we don't know. And there's so many people tackling this from so many different angles. Some of them are bound to, to pan out, but some of the stuff that we're enthusiastic about is, is more prosaic. Um, we're like, we're, Glad to see yields of staple crops and all crops increasing. And some of that is just traditional plant breeding. We're glad to see this happening side by side with people paying a lot of attention to inputs, just both because fewer inputs is going to make farming more sustainable and more profitable, and also because fewer inputs generally means less runoff, nutrient runoff into the water supply. It means fewer pesticides on the land. And, you know, we're seeing people do all of these things. And then some of the, you know, genetic modification, which got a terrible rap because the first product out there was were corn and soy that, that could withstand the herbicide Roundup. But now look at camelina, false flax, that can grow with long-chain omega-3 fats, which pr we, we've pretty much only been able to get them from fish and algae sources in the past. And now we have And you this, could grow it as a winter cover crop. And you can grow it as a winter cover crop. And, you know, disease-resistant crops like cassava in places where cassava is a, is a staple crop. And just last show, we talked about uh, perennial crops and perennial rice, um, a staple crop in huge parts of, of Asia, rice is, and perennial rice is showing yields comparable to, or in some cases a little bigger than annual rice, without some of the environmental impact that comes with annuals. So, you know, it's, it's not all fake meat. Right. Well, and also I think sometimes the problem when we think about it, like, how are we going to feed the world without frying the world, right? It's such a big problem. But just like we've taken the climate problem and, right, they talk about the wedges um, where you can break it into pieces. I think we can do that with, with the, the food and climate problem, right? We've got the meat problem and we discussed about sort of technological, you know, opportunities to, to help deal with that. There's the food waste problem, which we talk about a lot, right? Where, uh, where we're wasting a, food, a third of our food, so we're also wasting a third of the land to grow the food and the fertilizer and other inputs and water to, to grow the food. And again, with 
Same with, with food waste, we're seeing exciting options like, you know, you see Appeal Sciences, which is coming up with ways to preserve, you know, with preserve mostly fruits and vegetables with this kind of fake biotech peel. Um, now you have this company, Mill, who I was uh, talking to them last week. I don't know about that one. <laughs> these are the guys, well, the, I, I know where you're going. These are the guys who founded, uh, who founded Nest, right, which is now in like every yuppie's home, um, the, the thermostat. And now now they've come up with basically a kind of better composting where they give you a you know a cool bin and you put in all your food waste which is a huge part of that's the largest component of what goes into yeah, our land. Yeah, but then you have to send it in the mail. You got to <sighs> send it in the mail like once a month though cuz it like it's so efficient at processing all this food waste and dehydrating it. Look, they want you to pay 30 bucks a month to for the privilege of uh, of saving the world. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but part of this, you know, part of this whole, you know, journey that we're on is coming up with, you know, technological solutions, political solutions, behavioral solutions, and you know, as you're Maybe people will come up with an alternative financing mechanism. I think that's just, there's a lot of excitement. You mentioned in agriculture, right? Obviously, we got to make more food on the land and so, and, and with less land. And so, partly that's going to be these cool self driving tractors with the unbelievable GPS and artificial intelligence. So they know exactly where to put the fertilizer and, and where to spray the pesticide and so on and so forth. So forth. But it's also just going to be ways to reduce emissions uh, from from agriculture, right? Whether that's like, oh, I love this biopesticide that's made with the same technology, the mRNA technology that's behind the COVID vaccine. So it like constipates potato beetles to death, um, you know, or, or, you know, the p- companies like Pivot Bio that are instead of using chemical fertilizer, they're basically used, trying to introduce microbes that help things like corn produce their own nitrogen, fix their own nitrogen so that you don't have to dump it and it doesn't go into the into the lake, into the Gulf of Mexico. I just think there's a lot of exciting things that are happening. Even in, you know, we we sort of turn up our nose sometimes at the idea of soil carbon going to save the planet, that we're going to, you know, and this is partly the regenerative stuff where they're going to, through different ways of farming, they're going to end up storing a lot more carbon in the soil. And who knows if that will happen. Um, but you see a lot of exciting technology about how to measure that stuff, which if it is going to work, it's got to be measured. And you're seeing the satellite technology, the infrared technology, again, with artificial intelligence. There's just a lot going on that's going to help people slice away at these wedges of the problem. And I just think, you know, sort of the people who are kind of like, it's never going to happen. How do you know? Okay, so this takes us basically kind of full circle to where we started, which is that some of the things that we're excited about are things that other people aren't excited about. And some of the people, other some of the things that other people are excited about, we're not so excited about. And like regenerative ag is one of the things that people are very excited about. It's, you know, I'm old enough to remember when it was called agroecological farming. <laughs> and now it's called regenerative. And of course, we don't have a specific definition of it. And But it's about rebuilding soils. It's about storing carbon. And we are less optimistic about that. And and I think there's there's kind of a line in the sand here about the things that out in the world, the people who care about this stuff are optimistic about and why there's a mismatch between like 
people who hate us and us. <laughs> right. and, and and it's it's basically it's about naturalness. It's about this idea that the way we grow food and the food we eat should should be rooted in a natural system. And I think that unless we conquer this problem, unless we're able to disassociate naturalness from our view of the food system, not all the time, but a lot of the time, um, we're not going to make that progress. And I think that's kind of what we have to talk about. And I do, I do think that if you look at that Bloomberg story that we we started out by talking about, and again, there's Dina did some good reporting in there, but behind just about every paragraph, there was this idea that the reason this stuff is failing and is, I think, according to the story, doomed to fail, is that it's not natural, that it's fake meat, it's processed meat, people aren't going to like it, which is, <laughs> right, a little bit weird given how much Americans love processed foods. But there's this idea that somehow there's there's something not real and not right uh, about not just fake meat, but kind of this whole technological approach to food and even agriculture that I think is really what we need to burrow into. All right, so let's talk about naturalness and how the good food movement, and I kind of use the term loosely, got its its mojo in the United States. And I think we have to go back to Michael Pollan and the omnivore's dilemma um, in, I believe it was 2007. And Michael Pollan, I have to say, and I say this every time we talk about him, that I'm a fan of Michael Pollan. I think he's, first of all, he's an excellent writer. Um, Annoyingly and, excellent. <laughs> and he was instrumental in bringing the problems in the food system to people's attention. And I give him huge props for that because he almost did it single-handedly. Um, but because he was such a linchpin there, um, the fact that although he was right about a lot of the problems, he was wrong about a lot of the solutions, his... His his influence here is outsized. And so the mistakes that he made in sort of overvaluing the contribution of small, diverse, local farms is echoing through the debate we're having today about climate change, which wasn't even on the table back then. And, you know, it's I've come up against it over and over and over again that we we ended up with with this dichotomy. Either you are the pollenite, small, organic, local, diverse farm believer, or you know you're in Monsanto's back pocket. And and there's like this bright line, and it's been such a problem because the people on the pollenite side are unwilling to accept some of the advantages of the industrial system and yield is number one. But by the same token, the people on the industrial side poo-poo some of the concerns of the pollenite side, specifically things like um, you know, nutrient runoff, monocultures, the fact that we're growing two crops that go into cars and pigs and Twinkies rather than becoming a wholesome diet 
for actual humans. And so it's like never the side that the two shall meet. And you know, the thing about naturalness, this idea that naturalness is important, it's not completely wrong and it's not all bad. So if you're thinking about it from the eating side, eating basically whole-ish foods rather than highly processed foods is a really good idea. It's not a bad principle to go out in the world with. And the excesses of industrial ag are real and they matter and they're important. So it's not like naturalness has no no place. It's not like natural is bad and, and industrial is good. It's that naturalness is pretty much divorced from whether the thing in question is good or bad. And what I really want is for us to be able to disassociate naturalness from our opinions about these solutions. Right. I think what you're getting at, and this is something you've talk about so eloquently all the time, is this notion that we're kind of in ideological camps that we don't that we we're just driven by our priors right that the, the we kind of follow our fears rather than the facts we sit here banging our spoon on our high chair saying like you know read that you know look at the data look at the evidence um, but you know a lot of people are looking for ammunition they're not looking for information and we've we've definitely struggled with with dealing with this but also I got to point out that that's totally human and we do it too we're not exempt from this and, you know, my sort of number one priority as a journalist is to try and ensure that I don't do this. And I hope that it's it's had I've had some success, but I don't pretend to be above the fray. I don't pretend not to confirm my priors, but I do. I have literally, and we did a whole show about this, a list of strategies that I employ to try and avoid that. But this is this is not like a bad thing that the good food people are doing. It's a human thing that everybody does. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think we're, but but <laughs> doing a show about food and climate um, from a dorky, you know, fact-based perspective, we've certainly run into this, right? In that, first of all, you've got this, in the United States, not so much in the rest of the world, but certainly in the U.S., very large swath of people who are just never going to listen because they think, you know, climate change is bullshit or it's just, you know, uh, some kind of liberal hoax to, you know, justify authoritarianism or or who knows. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's not their tribe and, uh, and they're not going to pay attention to it. And then I think, and this, you've pointed out that uh, in the, in the climate conscious tribe, right? There's a, there's a real sympathy for a lot of this, you know, this idea that, oh, you know, you, the, you should know your pig's name and uh, you should have red barn farms that are, you know, this kind of pastoral romantic idea of what farming is supposed to be like, that we've gone to great lengths to try to show that, no, well, if you're trying to feed 9 billion people and you actually care about the Amazon and Congo rainforests and the hundreds of millions of people living in low-lying floodplains in Southeast Asia, um, that you actually have to think seriously about, you know, providing protein and calories en masse. And, uh, and that's- but that doesn't mean you, that you can not care about the welfare of the animals that sure. you eat. And you may not know your pig's name, but you should damn well care about the wife that that pig has. And I don't want to minimize that at all. 
And as you know, I've raised my own pigs and I didn't know their names. <laughs> but we've, we've done shows that we did an animal welfare show. We did a show about soy. We did a show about processed foods, showing that a lot of these kind of, um, you know, a lot of these ideological instincts don't necessarily hold up when you look at the facts. We did one about GMOs too, which are, of course, the big scarlet letter in the, uh, in the food world, or three scarlet wet letters. And it's hard and it's, it's tough for people who are genuinely caring and, genu- you know, have good reasons to assume that the corporate behemoths behind some of this, uh, you know, these nasty technologies um, don't have their best interests at heart. But it hasn't really been about problem solving. And I think that's where, when we've talked about the optimism about technology, I'm, and humans are really awesome at, uh, at developing technology, I've, I've become a little bit despairing about, about problem solving because it turns out that in, you know, maybe, maybe we're better than some of the other species, but, but we've created a lot of these problems and we're not that great at solving them. The, uh, the, obvious, the obvious analogy that I, that I keep coming back to is COVID, um, where we needed to come up with some amazing technical advances um, to provide a miracle vaccine that can actually protect people from this unbelievably deadly virus. And we did it like unbelievably fast. And then we just had to, you know, kind of be a society and deal with the problem in a kind of rational way. And there we utterly failed. And it it does make me think that, uh, you know, that even if we do invent the kind of the vaccine for food and climate change. Um, are we going to take it? Are we going to distribute it properly? <laughs> um, are we going to actually deal with the problem or are we all just going to be yelling at each other about it? And it's some of the same concerns with, you know, vaccines. It's all, it's about naturalness. And modern society, and I've always thought this about food, that food and ideology don't mix because feeding 8 billion, soon to be 9 billion people, it's just, it's just this endless series of compromises. And it's different with different kinds of food. It's different in different parts of the world. It's different in different climates. It's different as the climate changes. And, you know, you look at every situation and you do the best you can. You try and muddle through. But if you go in it with the idea that, okay, we have to do this organically, or this has to be a distributed rather than a centralized system, um, or it has to be a centralized rather than a distributed system, you end up making errors because there's there's no ideology that is a useful guide. And, you know, the thing about muddling through never attracts people because I think people who care about the planet um, are looking for, you know, some ringing moral clarity. And, well, we do the best we can. It, you know, inspires nobody. Whereas some of these more ideological bents, I think, do. They have charismatic leaders. They inspire people to follow them, and they 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 hook into some kind of solution. And, and I see it in food and diets as well. It happens all the time. Right. Well, journalism isn't as sexy as tribalism, right? <laughs> we've uh, we've seen that over and over again. And we did that, you know, we did that, uh, that the culture wars episode and, you, and right. It was like when, when Cracker Barrel put some, put a, you know, a plant-based sausage on the, on the menu and it was like, this is war, you know, and, and I really do fear that if, 
you know, if this, if everything is going to be shirts and skins, including our food, right? If, uh, you know, if, if it's all going to be about Biden burgers, right? Just like we had that, that moment when electric vehicles were Obama cars. Um, and, uh, and so it was, you know, just a blue America thing. Um, I, I think that's that's not going to be enough. This uh, this stuff is going to have to work for everybody because everybody freaking eats, and uh, and we're all part of this food system that we've you know is broken in many ways and is fixable in many ways. But you know we're going to have to be able to accept solutions. And the thing is, it 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 has been demoralizing to see that like the one thing the right and the left seem to agree on is that they don't want fake meat. <laughs> and, you know, the left doesn't want it because it's unnatural. And some of the right doesn't want it for that too. But a lot of the right doesn't want it because they want to own the libs. <laughs> and, and it, okay, that's the thing where people get agreement. And so I guess what I would like is to make the tent bigger, to get more people on the bus of some of these solutions that show some promise to see if we all can't try and leave our ideology at the door to try and look at these in as clear-eyed a way as we can. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Anne Bailey is the senior editor. Producers are Dalvin Abawaje and Daniel Waldorf. Mixing is by Sean Marquand and Roy Campanella. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. And if you like Climavores, spread the word. Tell people we're out there. Give us a rating on Amazon or Apple Podcasts. And we're also streaming on Amazon Music. And if there are people in your life who you think might enjoy us, let them know. <laughs>